Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Stephanie Swan, and I'm the children's pastor here. If this is your first time here, we're so happy that you've decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. Good morning, good morning. How are we doing? I want to know where the button is. Maybe it's down here where I can just, I feel super hot, Skyla, super loud. I want to know where the button is where I can just freeze time and just like fly a drone over everyone so I can actually see who's here. So I can just like take it all in. It's good to see you guys. Jason here. I'm lead pastor of ANC, and I'm coming up on my 10th anniversary here at ANC. How many of you guys, how many of you guys have been around long enough to to remember back at Jackie's when we had, yeah, that's right, the Momarts, Marlowe's, y'all remember way back when. Yeah, it's been a minute, 10 years, coming up on that. Halloween week, something like that? Something, my daughter here's on the front row, she's the, she's the keeper of the time. It's crazy how time flies. I was working at a mega church in Houston um, when this little church called ANC caught my eye way back in 2013. I was always going to end up pastoring in a small church. That was always going to be the game plan. I don't really know how we ended up there for a while. And when I say mega church, I mean big. You all know Houston. They don't do small. Um, I don't have the talent or the drive or really the interest or the skill set to lead 50,000 people and a staff of 350. It just is never going to be my thing. Now you've whittled it down. All the attorneys in the room are like, oh, we know what church you're talking about. Yeah, that was that church. But this, this is what I trained for, this right here. The weekly rhythm of preaching and leading and developing people, this is always gonna, was, was always going to be my game. If you're new here and you'd like to know more of my story, I don't really keep any secrets. I'll tell you the whole thing. Uh, let's have a drink sometime, you and I, and I would love to know more about your story if you're new. We really, I shouldn't say this, Trey, don't listen. We're not as busy as people think we are. We actually have room and space to have one-on-one time with you guys to meet you guys. So if that's interesting to you, let us know. So we've been camping in the book of Psalms from the Old Testament for a few weeks now. And camping here has been a good discipline for me to be forced into things that are good for me. Sometimes I have to be drug in backwards, right? It's a little bit like broccoli. Like I'm never putting that in my mouth unless, except for the fact that I know it's wise to because it's one of the superfoods, but that's never going in my mouth if it weren't for the fact that it's wise to do it. I don't dig around in the Psalms very often, but we've been... I think we've been finding some really good things here. Just being honest, I think the reason is, and we talked about this last week, but I'll restate, I'll I'll re-say it again just to affirm the point. The Psalms aren't theology. I've spent literally my entire life considering theology, right? So the Psalms aren't theology or doctrine, if you need to know. They aren't even always reliable history, if you're looking closely. The Psalms are a collection of poems. How many of you guys say poems? Oh, that's such a pet peeve of mine. Don't come at me with your poems. Southern, Southern folk. Who's, honestly, who says poems? <laughs> oh, Holly, I can't even right now. My grandmother said poems. Anyway, where was I? Okay, I see broccoli. I see theology. Where else? It's a collection of poems. I was at poems. That's right. <laughs> it's actually helpful for me to think of these as songs. These were, this is art. And we think of art and poetry differently than we think of history and fact. And if you don't believe me, would you trust Prince on the color of rain? Now, it's not really actually purple, is it? But the point lands. And so my, my, my thing is, as we look at 
art differently than we do at ancient history that sort of is a, like a chronological eyewitness account, which we don't have very many of those anyway. But it's art. We wouldn't trust, we wouldn't go to a poet to, 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 to tell us what happened in World War II. We're looking for a deeper connection, so maybe that's why it takes an extra bit of work. And also, growing up in the church spaces I grew up in, they were unclear how to think about the Psalms, and so they would just read little odds and bits and bobs of these things, and they would create doctrine out of them, and it always felt strange to me. You see, biblical literalists, which describes the theological tribe of my upbringing, possibly yours, they are constrained to, tr to treat every single word of this text with similar seriousness. There, like, isn't any, you know, lighthearted poetry in the way they look at the text. Nuance and context don't grow well in gardens, it turns out, where legalistic approaches to biblical literalism predominate and thrive. They don't tolerate each other very well in the same soil. So in response to the weirdness of the strange things I heard growing up, I've just learned to gyrate towards the teachings and the stories of Jesus over every other thing. But it's not to say I don't absolutely love poetry because I absolutely do. Like I always have, as long as I can remember. Poetry was one of the few worlds that I could retreat into that was out of reach, I hope he's not listening, of my stepfather. If I have to be honest, he's not listening, trust me, he's not listening. It was that little world that I could have on the side of some nuance and some emotions, some words. He would never stick his nose in there. And I would go there to hide out from the world that he was trying to create, which was made of non-emotive, super literal, objective truth, quote unquote, which we now know to be largely mythological anyway. I always felt like he didn't understand the world of poetry. It was too squishy, too gray. It was too emotional. So I naturally inclined myself to love it. I, I just moved in that direction. I learned to hide inside and behind beautiful words. Poetry is everything for me. What I'm allergic to is creating precise theology out of it. That's the point I'm trying to make. So to avoid the weirdness of my youth, I move with caution when tiptoeing in the tall grass of ancient poetry. But like poking around, literally, you guys, at the my favorite thrift store in the history of thrift stores. There's a store in Austin on South First called American Drifter. If you don't know it, you need to. Poking around in old poetry is like poking around in a good old thrift store. Some of you guys are about to leave. Listen, if you need to leave right now, it's okay. <laughs> 90s denim, vintage boots, all the things. You know, the jackets with the tassels, turquoise, they have it all. Anyway, if you need to leave, you're excused. But like poking around at a good vintage store, looking around in these old bits of poetry, it's always worth looking for something that might travel well across time. Now, you'd be foolish, if you were me, to try to summarize 150 different psalms into a single concept. But if you had to narrow it down, that's how my mind works. I would say these poems, or these songs, this art is for the most part in one way or another about faithfulness. But as we're going to see today, they aren't just about God's faithfulness. They're also about our own and the faithfulness of the good earth beneath our feet. Hopefully you'll see what I mean in a minute. So let's read Psalm 85, and this is where the lectionary takes us today. Let's read it together. Listen closely for something, a rustling in the leaves, if you will, that might move you. It reads this way. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You pardoned all their sin. Selah, which is like a way, it's a musical sort of break to say... God be praised in sort of a Monty Python way, okay? Carrying on. <laughs> it's hot outside, y'all. This is what happens. <laughs> Verse 3, you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. See, we're understood in Scripture. It's hot in, the, in verse 3 too. Verse 4, restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation towards us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? So that your people may rejoice in you, verse 7. 
Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now, you'll feel a, a gentle switch here in the voice. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his faithful, to those who turn to him in their hearts. And a, prop, a better rendering in Hebrew there might be to those who turn away from folly or foolishness in their hearts. Verse 9, surely his salvation is at hand for those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. Verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness will meet. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Now we're getting somewhere in our poem. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground. The righteousness will look from down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. Now, you can tell by the heading of this psalm, I didn't read it to you, but it simply says this, prayer for the restoration of God's favor to the leader of the Korahites, a psalm. And that would have been like a choir leader or a song leader. So you can tell it's supposed to be sung. And we know this about ancient poetry. Anything set to music was most likely done so to preserve and spread the beauty and the value of it. Now, Catherine reminded me this week, she's a better scholar of the Psalms than I am. I'm usually camped in the New Testament. But she reminded me this week that you could the thematically break this song into two chunks. Verses 1 through 7 have, have a sort of anxious voice to them. There's a lot of deep memory about it. It, it seems like some, some calamitous things, if you will. But then it's, it, it has a switch in verse 8 as it moves forward. But the, the old, older part is it's, it's as if the people are trying to recite God's own history to God to remind God to focus on mercy and forgiveness and get away from wrath and anger. And then it pivots in verse 8. Verses 8 through 13 feel like a calm promise of what's to come, a reminder of God's goodness and commitment to God's creation. Now, a little historic context here for you. Scholars believe this to be what we call a post-exilic psalm, meaning it was written after the Jewish people were allowed to come back from the exile, one of the various exiles, to their holy city, Jerusalem, and the surrounding areas where they lived and thrived at one point. The Exodus, you would know, is a major part of the Old Testament, but so is the concept of exile. It happened more than once, actually, and you could think of it as the constant threat hanging over the people of God, hanging over the ancient Jewish people. If they were willingly living or choosing to live outside of the bounds of Yahweh's expectations, then they were at risk of being hauled off into captivity by some rising imperial power in the neighborhood, which, as I said, happened more than once during their tumultuous history. Now, the prophets, and we know a lot about the prophets because they wrote a lot down, the prophets always assumed religious reasons were the motives for such cultural calamities. Of course they did. They were prophets. That was the game, right? But there's another factor, and I don't know why I feel it's worth mentioning, but I do. Israel was a relatively small group of people eking out an existence between rising global empires. Even in their gilded age, which you might say was under the leadership of King David, the monarch, they were a tiny nation compared to other things going on in the neighborhood. So whatever the religious metaphors the prophets and priests deployed to make sense of their calamities, the truth is also, simply, that they lived on disputed land positioned strategically on important trade routes. And of course that meant anyone who could manage and hold the control of those could control their economic future. That, those trading routes in that area would produce great wealth if you could hang on to it, and also great conflicts and wars. Ancient history, like modern history, is largely about economics, friends. I don't know how else to say it. It's about the flow of commerce, as you well know. Despite all of the meaning-making that goes on, done by religious professionals proficient in God-speak. Well, we do the same thing today, don't we? All this American talk of a city on a hill or our manifest destiny translation, grand theft geography. All of this American version of ideas are taken from religious lexicons and they're deployed for economic purposes. 
Well, Psalm 85 was almost certainly written to inspire the people to hope again. After returning to a worn-out, weather-beaten land where the crops were struggling to produce enough yields to feed a weary people. They had done their time in captivity. They had served their time, you might say. They were finally homebound with great expectations of finding prosperity and rest and maybe the better parts of their history as anyone would have been in their situation serving foreign kingdoms as laborers and indentured servants. But coming home, friends, turned out to be much more difficult than they had hoped. And that sentence feels so true when I've got four daughters in college bouncing around the world. Coming home seems a lot harder than it seems in your mind. Am I right? It's always true. If we read between the lines of this psalm, it appears that they had some earth issues. There were dirt disasters. They had soil situations and crop calamities. I'll stop. I just like the strong paired consonants and two-word sentences. But friends, my point is this. When you live in an agrarian society that depends on the yield of the soil, all your gods and all your big ideas about meaning and purpose and punishment and reward and even the afterlife, all of those ideas will ebb and flow with the successes and failures of your crops and your herds. That's just the way it is. Think about it. Ancient people had a much thinner understanding of how the physical world actually worked or works. But they knew this much to be true. If the rains refused to water the land, if little buds weren't replaced by stems and branches that were then heavily laden with flowers and fruit, then good people suffered. And since rain fell from the sky, the presumed domain of the gods, then of course when the weather didn't cooperate, it meant that the gods were angry. And of course they were probably angry because of something we did or didn't do. So in moments of intense suffering, of which this was one, Ancient humans looked around and projected their fear and terror onto the sky where the gods lived. Friends, you want to know why fear permeates all forms of religion if we're not careful? Just think of how scary it is to depend on principles and processes you don't yet have the capacity to understand or influence. If you live off of what the earth produces, a multi-year drought would seem like divine punishment. Of course it would, so would disease or even any new erratic movement of heavenly bodies. But at least with the dirt, friends, at least with the soil, at least you had a fighting chance to observe and learn how to get a few predictable results if you did the same thing often enough. If you were paying attention, you could figure out how to make it work for you. Which is why the dirt beneath our feet, friends, carries everything we'll ever need to know about God and life and meaning and history and the future of all things. All spirituality begins from the soil, dear friend. The role of the good earth play, that the good earth plays in God's becoming is my favorite part of this psalm. And that's a little hint as to where we're going next. We could mine all of this for meaning and encouragement, but we don't have time today. I want to spend what time we have left focusing on a set of images that I've come to love this week. Now, I won't go back through the whole poem, just to the last four verses. There's something beautiful and terrifying here if we can see it. So it reads this way, steadfast love and faithfulness will meet, righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Faithfulness will spring up from the ground and righteousness will look down from the sky. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. Now Catherine has encouraged us to rewrite these psalms in our own words and so here's my attempt. And I'm just suddenly aware that I have way too many words for poetry. So here they are. Love and earth will meet, and when they do, they'll make love, unconditional love. The material world has a predictable response to the divine. They were always going to rendezvous. They were made for that. Verse 11, earth's response to love will sprout up from the ground, from the soil, as love's potential comes down from above. 
Verse 12, God will plant God's seed, God's promise, God's delight, and the land will become pregnant. Verse 13, divine love and the good earth's response will literally open up a new path for God to follow. It will be the new chapter of God's own becoming. Now listen, I know I'm taking some poetic liberties here, but that's what you do with poetry. You extrapolate, you conjure, and you follow sensations. This is one of the reasons why the Jewish approach to the Psalms or to all of their sacred texts honestly feels so much more liberating and empowering than biblical literalism. But there's a dance going on here if you can notice the two characters in motion. It's an interaction between heaven and earth, between God and the cosmos, or you might say a dance between lovers. What catches my eye here is the interaction. It's a beautiful open metaphor if we can allow it to breathe. So for the sake of clarity, it always helps me to do this. Maybe we should make a list of what each partner is responsible for so we can keep track of what's going on. In this poem, here's what God brings. Steadfast love, righteousness, looking down from above, and a good gift. And the cosmos offers this in response. Faithfulness, peace, increase of the land, some kind of a new path or offspring. Again, friends, this isn't doctrine or theology, but this is a beautiful image that I would like us to sit with and remember. Now, think back to the context this poetry was penned in. These people had returned to a place that they daydreamed about while they were in great suffering, and it too, as often happens, turned out to be its own place of suffering. They still had needs, friends, and desires and wants. They still suffered lack and scarcity. The work wasn't done yet. You see, when things don't go the way you planned, and now we're going to make a hard right turn into your daily life and mine, when things don't go the way you planned, when things get tough, and when you begin to wonder if God has forgotten you, or worse, maybe God is mad at you for some reason, when you feel thin and weary and you can't even remember what peace felt like, that's when memory kicks in. Our brains, friends, and how they create and store experiences are the crowning achievement of a thousand generations stored in a cloud somewhere or in some shared field of knowledge that has been accumulating from all the beings that have gone before us. Friends, we sing and we read poetry because quickening our collective memory to recall God's faithfulness is strong medicine in times of worry and want. Is anyone besides me in this room sort of looking for some good old-fashioned encouragement these days. By singing to God and to ourselves reminders of how things have always turned out eventually, we're tapping into one of the great spiritual technologies we possess, memory, long memory. The word faithfulness turns up in the English translations of this passage multiple times, but as I dug around in the Hebrew text, I discovered that it actually says nothing about faithfulness, not even in verse 11. If you follow the English translations, which we have no choice but to do, I guess, it would seem that the earth's response to the love of God is faithfulness, which is a beautiful image, but it's not there in the Hebrew. All the same, I don't think the idea of the earth's faithfulness is foreign to the flow and the meaning of this song. I just think it needs a little bit of additional explanation. In my opinion, friends, what the psalmist is attempting to describe is the mutual responsiveness, or you might call it the synergistic overlap between the source of the cosmos and the cosmos itself. It's what holds the pair together on the dance floor doing Texas two-step. It's what coheres. It's the res mutual responsiveness. It seems, friends, there is an automatic interaction, an almost procedural, predictable response that feels encouraging to be remembered sometimes. 
Friends, when things aren't going as planned, when situations are tough and we're not even sure we can carry on, let long memory take the wheel. And all this goodness, all this miraculous interaction, all this potential and promise doesn't happen because of your hard work or your intense effort to please God. No, friends, the cosmos is, by nature, good. It was made to grow and expand and evolve. Most importantly, it's my joy to remind you and to remind myself today that it was made to respond to love. Which means even though this little poem written by an ancient musician isn't theological in nature, it's still a timely reminder, friends, that all things, all manner of things in the end will be well. What am I trying to say? There's more to life than just effort, friends. There is nature, the very nature of things. As Catherine says, there is ease. Our nature is to carry the offspring of the divine. We are the womb. Our world is easily impregnated with the goodness of God. New things, good things, long-awaited things literally rise from the soil of the good earth when love is around. Just in time, sometimes it seems like way too late, but just in time, not a moment too soon, often later than we we would have preferred, but the nature of the cosmos is to birth. Now, there's something I feel constrained to remind us of today, this being ANC, of course, this being Austin. God is not male. We know this, and yet nearly all of the ancient metaphors for God created and recorded by men use male identities to describe the divine. We know this which is how in this poetic song, the good earth and the people on it assume the role of responder, of the womb, of the carrier of God's investment, which being a person who navigates this life as a male, primarily, as far as I know, entirely as a male, right, in a male body with male identities, placing myself in the role of responder of the womb of the divine, essentially in feminine energy, it feels wonderfully subversive, it feels liberating and exciting. But what the psalmist is describing here is an interaction between Two lovers who have a deep effect on one another, which of course means this could, in theory, friends, go both directions. If you are a person who navigates this life primarily as a woman, being told that you're the womb of God may not feel all that interesting to you. Perhaps if the work of ancient women poets was preserved for us and considered equally sacred, perhaps we might be reading about how God is the receiver of human creativity, human curiosity, human initiative. Maybe that would feel wonderfully subversive and inspiring to you as a woman. I wish we had those poems. They probably wrote them down. We didn't preserve them. I wish we considered those ideas sacred. Friends, metaphors are only partially helpful. We know this. They always leave as much out as they include. Don't forget that. One final thought. This last verse, verse 13, has a big and potentially mind-bending idea built in. It's easy to miss if you're moving too quickly. It reads this way. Righteousness will go before him and will make a path for his steps. Again, forgive the male pronouns for God. These were ancient men. There's something important here, friends. Who conceives of a God that needs anyone or anything to go before them to make a path? Aren't the gods the path makers? What sort of all-powerful deity depends on their handiwork to co-create their own good future? What sort of God depends on their creation in order to further become who and what they already are? Oh, friend, I wonder if we can begin to see how wonderfully disruptive and liberating this thought might actually be. I wonder if we can make room for this thought. Perhaps we could pose that same question this way. Who isn't impacted by what new life they bring into the world, even if they are only 50% of the agency that authored that new path, that new solution, that new awareness? Who isn't moved by that? 
All right, let me just go for broke and ask it this way. Who can create anything without some sort of womb? Not even God. Friends, the ancient world built a deity with limited capacities. There's no other way to look at it. The theologians described for us as best they could a God who could cover the gap and fill the needs as they understood those gaps and needs from their perspective. But the poets, friends, the poets, they buried within their work big ideas in the form of seeds that would sprout later and give birth to a larger idea about how God might actually be still becoming in this interactive dance with what God has made. A God whose next great path on their own adventure of becoming is carried in the womb of their creation. Now, friends, that's starting to sound encouraging to me. I don't know about you. If you're struggling at this moment, if you have lost hope, if you are in mile 20 of your own long marathon, or if it's April 15th of your own rotten year, tax attorneys in the room, if you're standing at the graveside of something that you love that has died, friend, pick up your head now and remember with me. Give the wheel for a moment of your life to deep, long, poetic memory. God has always come through for you. It is not in God's nature to fail. Let your wise body, your strong heart, and your sharp mind and the good earth beneath your feet carry the seed of God forward now. No more resisting. You know how to release your most ancient DNA. Come on, band, sing something for us. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list. Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you're becoming. Grace and peace.